Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We are going through all of the books of the Bible, and today's teaching marks the beginning of our 48th book of the Bible. Yes, 48. We are studying 1 Peter, and today's teaching is entitled, Peter and the Grace of God. The book of 1 Peter gets its name from the attributed author, St. Peter the Apostle. When Jesus Christ walked on this earth, he was followed by 12 disciples, and many people, including the Catholic Church, consider Peter to be the head disciple of Jesus. In fact, to this day, the Catholic Church considers Peter to be the first pope of the church. And so with that in mind, we turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, to read about who Peter is and what Peter had to say to a specific group of people. We read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All six of those locations are in modern-day Turkey. Now, I want us to pause for a minute here because the way that Peter addresses these six different cities is rather interesting. He says to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, what's really interesting about this is if you go to the end of Peter's letter, in chapter 5, verse 13, you read these words, Your sister church in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. So Peter writes to exiles from Babylon. Now, if you don't know the Bible, you can miss what Peter is trying to allude to here. Because without a doubt, the most important historical event in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible is the Babylonian exile. In 586 BCE, about 600 years before 1 Peter was written, there was the nation, the empire of Babylon that attacked Jerusalem. Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and took the survivors back with them to Babylon to live as Babylonian citizens. This exile lasted for 47 years, and when Peter addresses exile saying he is writing from the church in Babylon, he wants everyone who is reading this letter to call it to their attention this historic event. Now what's really strange is that Babylon was destroyed in 539 BCE by the Persians. So 600 years later, when Peter is writing his letter, the likelihood that he's writing from a destroyed city is rather remote. For this reason, many scholars to this day believe that Peter was actually writing from the new Babylon or the Babylon of Peter's day, which was the empire of Rome and specifically the city of Rome. So while Peter is writing from a different time period, Peter is asking whoever is reading this letter to remember the Babylonian exile. So an astute reader will ask the question immediately, what does the Babylonian exile have to do with Peter's current situation? If we fail to answer that question, we can miss the entire point that Peter is making. So I want you to think about that question because we will come across the answer here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, if you've been with us as we've read through the prophets here at Paradox, you know that we read about how the prophets often tell the people who are living in exile that they deserve it. 
After all, God is just and God is angry with how unreligious the people of Jerusalem were. So God, in an effort to make people more religious, punishes these people by sending them to exile and then demands their repentance. So because of this, we assume that Peter is going to open his letter and write to the exiles in Pontus, Galatia, Bethania, and more, and say to them, hey, guys, God is tired of your wicked and depraved ways, and he has abandoned you. But that's not the way Peter writes his letter. Instead, what he writes is rather surprising and markedly different than what the prophets wrote in their writings. Peter writes to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter goes on to say in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while, while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Over those several verses, Peter answers the question, what does the Babylonian exile have to do with this current situation? Peter looks at the six cities and the six churches he is addressing, and he recognizes that they are suffering. They are hurting. They are possibly undergoing persecution or tragedy or strain in their social lives. And he looks at them and he says, oh, you guys remind me of the exile. In other words, Peter tells us that the suffering that we all experience is our exile. And if anyone who is reading this letter has suffered, then they know what it's like to long for liberation, to long for this suffering to come to an end. And so Peter writes to people in the midst of their brokenness and talks to them about who Jesus Christ is. And the message of these first few verses in 1 Peter is simply this. We can experience the grace of God in the midst of our suffering. We do not have to wait for liberation in order to experience mercy. While times are tough, Peter says, we can still find God in the midst of this toughness. He goes on to write in verse 8 and 9, Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter is stunned and inspired by the fact that there are people who have never met Jesus and they still 
Love him. He talks about the fact that people are still experiencing joy in the midst of hardship and he is blown away by it. This all culminates in the last chapter of 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 12, when he writes in a closing to his letter, Through Silvanus, whom I consider a faithful brother, I have written this short letter to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. After that sentence, he reveals his thesis statement for the entire letter. Stand fast in the grace of God. Which raises the question, what does it mean for us to stand fast in the grace of God? Because that is Peter's ultimate conviction for writing this letter to churches who are experiencing hardship. For the rest of this podcast, I'm going to talk about what it means for us to stand fast in the grace of God, because I think this concept is life-changing. The ability to stand fast in the grace of God is the fundamental building block of healthy faith, and Peter's desire is for you to experience that as well. So let's talk about what it means to stand fast in the grace of God. And to talk about that, I want to first talk about creation. Now, creation is a word that's very important to Christians. In fact, I've been told that I have to believe specific things about creation, otherwise I cannot be a Christian. Specifically, I have been told that you cannot be a Christian unless you believe the world was created in six literal 24-hour days and those six literal days occurred in an uninterrupted, continuous, and contiguous sequence. Man, those, those words just feel soulless coming off my tongue. And the reason why people believe this, that you have to believe in creation this specific way, is because of the book of Genesis. They will point to the book of Genesis and say, the Bible opens with the story of creation, and creation was created in six days. And if you don't believe it, then you can't trust any of the rest of the Bible, and therefore you can't be a Christian. So don't believe anything outside that paradigm. But is that what Genesis is for? Scientific facts? Did God inspire an author to write about creation so that we could refute geological columns and radioactive carbon dating? Was Genesis written with the intent to separate the gullible from the devout? Or was Genesis written with a different inspiration and purpose in mind? To answer these questions, I'd like to tell you the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And on the first day of creation, God separated the light from the darkness. And God saw that the light was good. And that was the end of the first day. Then on the second day, God separated the water so that there might be a dome above and waters down below. And in the space between, God insisted that life may happen. And that was the end of the second day. Then on the third day, God created dry land and then filled that land with plants and trees and vegetation and foliage. And God looked at all of these plants and greenery and God saw that it was good. And that was the end of the third day. 
On the fourth day, God created the sun and the moon and the stars to give shape and form to the light that God had earlier created. And God looked at the vastness of the heavens with its celestial beings, and God saw that it was good. The end of the fourth day. Then on the fifth day, God created birds to fill the sky and sea creatures to fill the waters below. And God looked at all of the life teeming in these spaces, and God saw that it was good, which brought a close to the fifth day. And then on the sixth day, God created every animal on the planet from otters to ostriches to octopi. And God looked at all of these magnificent creatures and God saw that it was good. And after creating all the animals, God created humankind, both men and women at the same time, created in the image of God. And God looked at them and God blessed them. And then God looked back at everything that God created and God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. And that was the end of the sixth day. And even though creation was complete, God was not done creating. We read in Genesis chapter 2 verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. And it's here that Christians look at Genesis chapter 1 and they say, See, God created the earth, everything in it, in six literal, continuous, contiguous, 24-hour periods with an uninterrupted sequence. Believe that or you're out. And Christians have believed this so passionately that they have written all kinds of papers trying to undermine evolution, trying to prove that the earth is somehow older than the stars, which is a little difficult to prove scientifically, and to show that science is a tool of the devil. Now, it's here that I have a confession to make. I am not an expert in science. I'm a fan of science, I dabble in science, but I am no expert. But I am an expert in the Bible. And I will tell you that all of these premises and this idea that you have to believe the earth was created in six literal days are extremely problematic. And the reason I find this to be extremely problematic is because of what happens in the very next verse after God blesses the Sabbath. Because in the very next verse, creation starts over and we get a brand new creation story that is very different, very different than what happens in Genesis 1. Now, I am fully aware of the argument that comes from people that are a bit more conservative than me. They will tell you and tell me that Genesis chapter 2's second creation story is not a separate creation story but is a retelling of the first creation story. The reason I can't buy the idea that Genesis 2 is a retelling of Genesis 1 is because Genesis 2's creation story happens in a vastly different order than Genesis chapter 1. So with that in mind, let's read the second creation story, which is a different creation story than Genesis chapter 1. 
Genesis 2 verse 4 reads this, In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain upon the earth. There are no plants at this point in the story because we've started over. Now it's here that we read about a stream that bubbles up from the ground and then recedes. And this stream that bubbles up causes the dirt around the stream to become moist or to dry out based on the ebbs and flow of the stream. In verse 7 we read, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So at this point in this story, all we've got is dirt and a dude. We then go on to read in verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And after placing Adam into the garden, we read in verse 9, Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So God creates plants after a man in this second creation story. We then read about the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, which those trees don't make any appearance in Genesis chapter 1. And then God looks at Adam and empathizes with him. God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. God then returns to the dirt where God sculpted Adam and sculpts birds and sea creatures and animals all in one fell swoop. God then takes those animals one by one before Adam and asks Adam to name each and every species of animal. And after this laborious naming process, we read in Genesis 2 verse 20, But for the man there was not found a helper as his partner. God then caused Adam to fall asleep. God removed a rib from Adam. And then God creates in Genesis 2 the crown jewel of all of God's creation, woman. And as this story is drawn to a close, we read in Genesis 2 verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Because before there is any sin, it was impossible to shame someone over their body. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we have two conflicting creation stories. But when you look closely, you realize that these stories conflict only when you consider them to be historical events. Rather, these stories are complementary if you consider what they are both trying to tell you about creation and the Creator. You see, when I look at Genesis 1, a question I ask is, what is the thesis of this creation story? Now, this is a very obvious thesis statement because every time God creates something, with the exception of the second day, God looks at that thing and God sees that it is good. And so I would argue that the thesis of Genesis 1 is that the earth and all of creation is good. Now, when we look at Genesis 2, the thesis of that creation story is a little bit nuanced, but it's much more built around the human experience. God empathizes with a human being. 
Not only that, but God understands the problems of loneliness and God seeks to help us close that feeling of loneliness. On top of that, God views humanity in relationship with the earth and with the animals. And so I would argue that the thesis of Genesis 2 is that humanity is good. You see, the author of Genesis really wanted the person who was reading this text to understand that God is worthy of worship because what God has created is, in fact, good. And if God created something that was evil or abhorrent or tortuous, then does that say anything about who God is? Of course it does. At that point, God is not worthy of worship. God is a cruel narcissist. And so the lasting impression and the purpose of Genesis is that we may understand that the earth is a good place, that to be human is good, and therefore God is a good creator. Now, when people take Genesis 1 and 2 and try to prove science or disprove science with that text, they completely misunderstand the point. And I believe we have two vastly different creation stories to remind ourselves that this isn't about historical fact, but is to inspire us to consider that creation and the earth and humanity is in fact good. Which raises a question that every person of faith needs to ask. Do you believe that our existence here on earth is good? I know a lot of Christians who believe that the earth is an evil place. That God can barely stand this earth and the people on it, and God will soon return to smote everything this earth touches, including ourselves. This is counter to the Genesis story. Not only that, but I know people who have added prequels to Genesis and have talked about how before there was creation, there was a cosmic conflict that occurred in heaven, and we are collateral damage as we are between two warring gods, God above and Satan down below. Well, what does that say about God? What does that say about the earth? What does that say about us? Instead, Genesis 1 and 2 would ask you and invite you to see the earth and creation as a good place. And this is where I believe the fundamental building block of healthy faith begins. Because in my opinion, faith is not the ability to trust or believe in ridiculous things. Instead, faith is what one trusts about the character of God. If you are an atheist or agnostic and you're listening to this podcast, I would say that faith is what you trust about the character of the universe. And the reason why Genesis 1 and 2 are placed at the beginning of the Bible is because it's an invitation to every reader to see this world and our shared existence as a good occurrence. Just last week, the Washington Post published an article about a study that came out of the University of Pennsylvania. Now, the University of Pennsylvania was looking at primal world beliefs, the thing that we believe at our core and how it affects our behavior and ultimately our happiness. They shortened primal world beliefs to primals and their results were stunning. The author of this article, Emily Smith, writes these words about this study from UPenn. 
By far the most important primal to emerge from the research is the overall belief that the world is a good place. More than any other, she continues to write, this belief was associated with all kinds of positive outcomes, like having more friends and deeper relationships, having more meaning in life and higher overall well-being, being less depressed and stressed, and being more optimistic. She continues to write, this suggests that if your default assumption is that the world is a bad place and that story is holding you back, it could be more helpful to change your story of the world before trying to make yourself happier in more immediate ways. She then cites examples like changing your job or getting out of or into a romantic relationship. We open this podcast by asking the question, what does it mean to stand fast in the grace of God? And when I look at who Peter is writing to and how he addresses them as exiles and he talks about their present suffering, I believe that we stand fast in the grace of God when we believe that the world is good. And yes, suffering and evil and pain are all very real, but they are part of this world. And when you look at the overall scope of what it means to exist here, when we trust that it is ultimately a good thing to be alive on this planet, that is the moment that we stand fast in the grace of God. And I believe that Peter is writing to people who are suffering. He is sympathizing with them. He is understanding their pain, but he talks about the ability to stand fast in the grace of God in the face of suffering. And if that sounds difficult to you to believe that the world is good because of the suffering that you have endured, well, then first Peter is written for you. Because while Peter has suffered and while Peter has seen some of the worst that this world has to offer, Peter believes that it's worthwhile to stand fast in the grace of God and to trust that this creation and our existence is good. A few years ago, I went with my family to Hawaii, specifically the island of Maui. One of the touristy things to do on Maui is to go to the top of Haleakala, the highest point of the island of Maui, and welcome the sunrise. Now, Haleakala is rather tall. It's over 10,000 feet tall. So what they don't tell you is how cold it is up there while you're waiting for the sun to rise. To make matters worse, no one packs warm clothes for Hawaii because otherwise, why would we go to Hawaii? So my wife and I woke up very early to drive up to the top of Haleakala. We get as far as our car will take us and we walk the rest of the way and we sit there and we wait for the sunrise. Now every second felt like a minute because we were so cold, but eventually we started to see the sky get lighter and then all of a sudden just over the horizon, there it was, the sun coming over the clouds. We stood there in silence at the beauty of this serene moment. Then after about a minute passed, the park ranger spoke up and said to all of us in a grand tone, Ladies and gentlemen, March 22, 2015. Immediately, all of us on top of the mountain started cheering and clapping. Now, I don't know if you remember what you were doing on March 22, 2015. But the only reason I remember it is because I was on top of Haleakala and some guy said, hey, 
It's March 22, 2015. Isn't that great? And we all cheered. I have not cheered at the beginning of many days. Not only that, but the sun rises every day at my home here in Redlands. Can you imagine if my neighbor woke up every day and announced the date and then cheered? What is it that made March 22, 2015 so special? And it's then when I'm asking that question that I turn to my left and I see my wife standing next to me and we're on top of a volcano in Hawaii that I realize that this day was a day worth cheering for. Not only that, but the day before, March 21, 2015, I was able to take a picture of my daughter that is one of my favorite pictures to this day. But it keeps getting better because the day after we cheered for the sunrise on March 23, 2015, my brother-in-law was married and my daughter was the flower girl for the first time in a wedding. It may be easy for you to point at the fact that I was in Hawaii and that's why it's so easy to believe the world is good when you're in a tropical island on vacation. But isn't the goal, isn't the hallmark of spiritual maturity the ability to see every day as a day that is worth cheering? To see every sunrise as a gift from our creator? To be able to experience the depths of grace in the pain of our suffering? Wherever you are right now, I want you to think about the date of the day that you are listening to this recording. Say the date out loud or write the date down or visualize the date in your head. Do you see that combination of a word with numbers to be a gift? Because it is in that moment when you see this day as a day that is overflowing with grace that you begin to stand fast in the grace of God. My brothers and sisters, may we stand fast in the grace of God and may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all that we experience right here, right now, today.